0: The Joker represents ultimate chaos. Batman represents ultimate order. And again, this is Batman's monotropic focus. Batman's real identity is Batman. He camouflages, he masks as Bruce Wayne to fit into the world around him. He pretends to be a millionaire playboy in order to fit in with society, in order to fund his projects of justice. Episode 28, Superheroes Are Autistic Welcome to the Autistic Culture Podcast Each episode, we dive deep into autistic contributions to society and culture by introducing you to some of the world's most famous and successful autistics in history
1: before we get started, a quick disclaimer on how we use the word autistic. The purpose of this show is not to diagnose the people or characters we discuss as autistic. While some may have announced being autistic, what we're really sharing here is our observation of what is representative of autistic culture. It can sometimes be difficult for autistic people to celebrate our natural tendencies and traits due to the perception of autism as a disorder that needs to be fixed, a long history History of damaging medical interventions to get autistics to fit in with mainstream culture and protective masking skills many of us have developed to try to stay safe.
0: Whether you are autistic or just love someone who is, your host is Dr. Angela Loria, the Linguistic Autistic.
1: And licensed psychological practitioner, Matt Lowry, welcome you to take this time to be fully immersed in the language, values, traditions, norms, and identity of autistic.
0: Hey Angela. Hey Matt. How are you dealing with the forces of chaos?
1: Oh, I I'm just waiting to I'm
0: waiting for a hero.
1: I need a hero.
0: I I, I totally feel you because uh, yes. the, the the world has been chaotic as of late, and as you know, <laughs> it is it, it is a, a bane to our people because and, and this this is a thing because I have been thinking. The the autistic experience is a Venn diagram of monotropism, of justice sensitivity, and of chaos management. And when you have yeah. those three things and they intersect together, you know what you get? You get superheroes.
1: Superheroes. Because. Wait, do you know that there are real like like there are people who try to be actual superheroes in real I life? Have seen,
0: I have seen them, uh, especially like running around Chicago.
1: Yeah, I bet yeah. they are also in the autistic culture family.
0: I have definitely thought about that (laughs) every time I see somebody. uh, So here's the thing. Again, you know, uh, the cosplay community, I'm going to go out on a a limb and say mainly autistic. Next, we'll
1: we'll let people in on the Star Trek community.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And, And that's the thing, because superheroes always wear costumes. Superheroes have a... So uh, you remember uh, me talking a while back about this study where uh, uh, so uh, in case anybody uh, needs to be caught up, they did this study that was published, I think, last year, and they they had autistic people and allistic people play a card game. And in this card game, you could win fake money. And inevitably, uh, there was uh, a way to cheat to get more fake money. And inevitably, all of the allistic members cheated to get more fake money because that was the point of the game. Maybe not all. all,
1: Science check.
0: Well, no, no, no. Actually, all. All? Actually, yeah, legitimately. (laughs) It it shows in the study all of the holistic people cheated. And none of the autistic people cheated. And that's where the researchers came up with the conclusion that uh, uh, autistic people have, quote, a rigid moral inflexibility that prevents us from succeeding.
1: Oh, wait, that prevents us from exceeding,
0: right? We could have gotten Uh, more money. Exactly, exactly. We could have
1: gotten more money. What's wrong with you?
0: That's the thing. They see it as a deficit because we could have been much richer if we lied and cheated our way to the top. Because this is the thing about allistic culture. It's all based on power, prestige, and profit. Mm. Because no matter what you do to your fellow human being, as long as you come out on top, you win. Right. And this, this, uh, along with that whole thing about us being uh, hypersensitive to our environment and perceiving the world as a state of chaos due to our hyperconnected brains, this chaos management, they call the intense world theory. Mm-hmm. When you combine this need to combat chaos with order, because again, we have expectation sensitivity, we need to structure our lives to fight the forces of chaos. Right. When you combine that with the rigid moral inflexibility, and then when you combine that with our monotropic focus, you get people who have a strong sense of justice, who focus entirely on that strong sense of justice and who use that strong sense of justice to fight the forces of chaos. That's the recipe for a superhero. You have
1: just described the formula for most superheroes.
0: (laughs) That's the thing. And so uh, the thing that uh, got me uh, on this is that uh, earlier this week, and uh, by the time you listen to this, viewers in the future. Uh, It will have been months, if not decades later. But, uh, uh, so it was revealed that the Lego Movie 2 script uh, had been abandoned because Warner Brothers is trying to cut back on animation, but it was co-written by famously autistic Dan Harmon. And the Lego Batman Two script would have focused on how difficult it is for Batman and Superman and anyone to maintain adult friendships, mm. which is a common problem mm. for autistic people because again we have a uh, very little sense of time awareness, we fall into our routines we don 't we 're not good about. Texting back uh, where, you know, this is a problem. And because Dan Harmon approaches everything in an autistic way, including, like, his podcast, uh, Community, Rick and Morty, everything he ever writes is autistic-centered. Uh, Lego Batman 2 would have been very, very autistic But yet not the first example of autistic Batman, not the first example of autistic Superman, and definitely not the first example of an autistic superhero.
1: And they did, they pulled the plug on Lego Batman, too. Uh,
0: They did, uh, along with all animation projects, they outright canceled Scoob 2, which, uh, again, had an autistic focus because uh, uh, McKenna Grace, the star of Ghostbusters Afterlife and probably autistic, Mm -hmm. starred in the movie. We talked about uh, her in episode
1: one, I think, Ghostbusters is autistic, yep.
0: But yeah, they, they pulled the, the plug on a lot of animation projects, including Lego Batman 2. So hopefully we well, hope see the light of yeah, day. Yeah,
1: I hope that circles back around. Because I do think the friendship thing doesn't get enough attention. Not from autistic people, but just like friendship as adults isn't covered. Romance is. But like friendship yeah. doesn't get enough attention. And it's hard. There are so many like hidden codes. One of my my college roommate, who is neurotypical, um, and it has been a friend for like 30 years. She's so good at friendship that I feel like I'm studying. I'm like a scientist. I'm like, oh, this is very interesting. This Ooh, is the way. Look at this. Like she always buys like presents and they're like very thoughtful. I'm like, when do you buy these? Where do you keep them? How do you do it? Everything's like custom And she always checks in, like she's always checking in with me before I check in with her. So I'm just like writing notes, trying to like figure out how does this friendship thing work? Luckily, she has carried me along. Very grateful.
0: That's (laughs) some Leslie nope level friendship. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But yeah, that's that's the thing. And uh, I so 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 today I want to talk about the long history of autistic superheroes and where they originated uh, with autistic authors. In particular, we're mm-hmm. going to go all the way back to 1906. Doo-doo-doo-doo,
1: doo-doo-doo-doo, and, uh, we,
0: we are going to talk about Robert E. Howard. Robert E. Howard was a prolific pulp fiction writer who, uh, over the course of 15 years, wrote 300 short stories and 700 poems.
1: Oh, damn, that's some Hamilton level writing. That oh, yeah. is prolific
0: yeah uh because he he was a v- uh, but okay, so yeah, yeah, but we'll get into the, yeah. So anyway, it starts off with Robert E. Howard's father being a doctor during the Texas oil boom. And the Texas oil boom, if you don't know about it, watch Old Country, or No Country for Old Girl Men. Old Men,
1: yep, I yeah, I know that movie. Where
0: there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of backstabbing, there's a lot of all sorts of horrible, horrible things. And being a doctor uh, in Texas during the oil boom, Robert E. Howard grew up watching signs of horrific violence against each other. He saw that there were all these evil, evil people doing horrible, horrible things to people, and he was very hurt by this. So he he said that there was so much injustice in the world. He used the term injustice. Mm. So uh, he he took up boxing uh, because he he became, quote, a lover of all contests of masculine struggle, because he said if he became physically strong, he could fight back against these bullies. Mm. He was also bullied at school because he started writing stories at age nine. He was a big fan of Bullfinch's mythology, Roger Kipling, Jack London, and he, he could be found sitting in the library reading stories about Vikings and the pits. And of course, you know, you're, if you're nine, writing stories about Vikings and the Picts and other people are saying, hey, hey, library kids, surely you're cool, Right. That's why he, he needed to, you know, bulk up because he was very, very much frustrated that people would bully him, that people would bully other people. And it was wrong. Mm. So by the age of 15, he started submitting stories to pulp magazines, as was the way of the time. And uh, at 16, uh, his mother and his father did not see eye to eye on a great many things. Uh, His his, uh, father was a doctor and uh, had a whole bunch of get-rich-quick schemes. His mother was also a writer and spent a lot of time taking care of her family's health. And there was a lot of tuberculosis going on back then. So she caught TB and spent a lot of her time in and out of hospitals being treated for TB. Mm -hmm. She spent a lot of her time. and, And again, when ill, she would write. She would write with him. And he developed a very close relationship with her. And said that you know he she was a great influence on him and for the day he became a feminist writer his female uh, we'll get into that in a little bit because uh, it, especially for the 1900s uh, he had very strong female characters right. owing partly to his mother, but partly to his, we'll we'll get into that in a minute. But but anyway, uh, he was introduced to uh, his high school newspaper and he started publishing short stories in his newspaper, Uh, including in 1922, he featured two stories, Golden Hope Christmas and West is West, which both won gold and silver prizes. All
1: right. So,
0: Uh, He graduated in 1923 and started this intense self-regiment of working out that included cutting down oak trees and chopping them into firewood every day, lifting weights punching bags, uh, springing exercises, and turn from a skinny teenager into a muscled burly man.
1: I bet and he was. Yeah. Aww. So he,
0: he needed to be muscled and burly to combat the injustices and the bullies. But uh, his father, while his father was big on the bulking up, he hated the writing. He refused to pay for uh, Robert to go to school to become a writer, so he he did it on his own. And in 1924, he was first published about a caveman story for $16. $16! And that was a, that was a prize for him. That's so, huge! Yeah, yeah. And so, but in comparison, uh, he, he decided to start working as a soda jerk for $80 a week, but He eventually hit burnout because he was overworking himself, as the majority of Mm, us do. mm -hmm. In 1927, he invented the genre of sword and sorcery when he created Cole the Conqueror, Solomon Cain, and Conan the Barbarian.
1: Oh, wait, what year are we in?
0: 1927. Wow, all right. So... Conan the Barbarian is entirely based on his views of uh, you, you have to be strong in order to advocate for the weak. You have to be strong to fight injustice. You have to be strong in order to take on all of these forces of evil. And that became a major theme in his life. So by the time he was 23, he was a full-time writer, and he started deep diving into Celtic origins and Gaelic. Same. And he met... and. <laughs> Through through these studies, he met a pen pal. Okay, and uh, his his pen pal loved writing and wrote a hundred thousand letters in his lifetime. And his pen pal set up this circle of writers, which was like uh, the 1900s version of Discord. Nice. That friend was H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, so. So Robert E. Howard became a founding member of H.P. Lovecraft's inner circle. And H.P. Lovecraft referred to Robert as Two-Gun Bob because he loved talking about the Wild West. He loved talking about uh, justice. He loved talking... So they collaborated on many, many stories, including like Cthulhu stuff. And Robert E. Howard came up with Shuma Garath for the Cthulhu mythos, Mm -hmm. which is a big reason why the most recent Doctor Strange movie, fun fact, the original Doctor Strange uh, uh, was uh, partially written by Dan Harmon. And uh, uh, Doctor Strange is coded as autistic in the movie because, again, massive interest in uh, reading, massive interest in research, massive interest in music. Uh, uh, Doctor Strange is autistic, at least in the first Doctor Strange movie. But but anyway, so Shuma Garath, Doctor Strange's arch nemesis, was originally part of the Cthulhu mythos and originally fought Conan the Barbarian. So uh, he and Lovecraft's inner circle spoke extensively of the concept of barbarism versus civilization. And Robert E. Howard said that civilization was inherently corrupt and fragile because of the people who created it. Uh, it, This was summed up in his famous line from Beyond the Black River. He said, oh, here, uh, let me uh, give you this quote. Uh, Let's see here. I'll put this in the note or up there.
1: Yeah. Barbarism is the natural state of mankind. Civilization is unnatural. It's a whim of circumstance. And barbarism must always ultimately triumph. Well, that's lighthearted.
0: And and again, he came... He lived old country, uh, no country for old men, because he said, "The strong survive, the strong fight off the evil ones, and you have to be willing to be barbarous in order to fight these forces of chaos because the the structure of society cannot fight the chaos." Mm. Uh, Lovecraft said the opposite. He said that civilization was the peak of human achievement and the only way forward. So they they had an agreement to disagree on this sort of stuff. But uh, that, that those two things, the 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 civilization versus barbarism, became mm. a major theme in his writing as he went on. Right. He uh, so as he went on, he met this woman, Novaline Price. Uh, Novaline Price was the ex-girlfriend of one of uh, his best friends, uh, and uh, he met her after visiting his mother in a TB clinic. So uh, she was a, an aspiring writer. She'd heard of him in the past. It was very enthusiastic to meet him in person, but... Uh, she, uh, th- in her, so she was a prolific writer herself. She kept a massive, massive journal that uh, was later turned into the movie, The Whole Wide World, starring Vincent D'Onofrio as Robert E. Howard and Re- Renee zillwiger as her. Oh, okay. So, uh, so this is her first impression of him.
1: So she says, this man was a writer, him? It was unbelievable. He was not dressed as I thought a writer should dress.
0: So uh, she became a schoolteacher, and they had a, a, an interesting on again, off again uh, relationship. And every time uh, he would, when he came up in conversation with colleagues, she would always defend him from accusations of "quote being a freak and crazy." And she wrote a lot about how you know he was just eccentric; he was just different probably autistic. And he she was a stalwart defender for him. And in turn, she was a major, major factor in how he started writing women. Mm, okay. uh, he started writing w- women as incredibly strong, incredibly virtuous, and would always beat down the other people. So uh, they, they dated on and off. They spent their time discussing writing, philosophy, history, religion, reincarnation and that at at certain times they both talked about getting married but never at the same time she would say hey let's get married and he's like no nah, not right now he would say hey let's get married and she's like no nah, not right now because i, I am familiar
1: yeah. with this phenomenon <laughs>
0: yeah 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 and uh, she they, they they became very this is the state of the relationship. They, they very much admired each other. They had a very intense intellectual relationship. They had the on again, off again, uh, romantic relationship and they were very influential in each other's life. Unfortunately. Oh, and this is where we have a trigger warning because we're going to talk about some dark stuff for the next five minutes or so. Oh, no.
1: Okay.
0: So, uh, this, uh, was where, uh, as you know, Robert E. Howard's mother had been fighting TB her entire life. Right. And in 1936, all of his friends had gotten married. Uh, his The pulp magazines, uh, due to various circumstances, were being assaulted by, you know, uh, yeah, all, all sorts of things. it was kind factors. of the end
1: of that. So he's yeah. 30 at this point.
0: Yeah. He's 30, um, he's
1: had some career success, he kind of has a... On again, off again, girl. But yeah, yeah, Pulp Magazine's not doing well.
0: So he's been talking a lot about suicide. Oh, okay. And he's he says, yeah, life is not great. Uh, I don't see it getting any better. He asked his father, so if mom dies, are you going to join me? And his father says, of course I'll join you. Wherever you move, I'll move there with you. Because his father does not get it. No. So, uh in 1936 his mother fell into a coma and the nurse said that she would not recover. And uh so he he went out to his car in the hospital parking lot and shot himself. He died 8 hours later.
1: At 30?
0: At 30. No. He uh, Again, because of suicide and these intense emotions and this kind of stuff, autistic people have an average life expectancy of 36. and I know, he did that's not make crazy. It. And because of uh, that, uh, his wow. father inherited all of uh, the rights to the Conan stories, uh, and he sold them to a bunch of neurotypicals who still make money off of them to this day. Uh, and he he died without ever knowing that he would create a genre. He died without ever knowing that he would change the world because back in his day, again, he was paid very little for these little stories that popped up. Right. He, he did not know what an influence he would be. He did not know that he would create feminism with Dark Agnes de Chastillion, uh, first appearing in Sword Woman in 1932.
1: Okay, I he already cre- love her. She might be my like <laughs> superhero of choice.
0: He he created the the modern uh, the the strong pirate Helen Tra- Tra- Travel in the Isle of the Pirates Doom in 1928, and uh. uh Conan's supporting characters, Balit in Queen of the Black Coast and Valeria of the Red Brotherhood, Red oh. Nails, as well as the Ukrainian mercenary, Red Sonia. Oh, right.
1: Okay. Some of that sounds familiar. I like that, Sonia. Yeah, Sonya. yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: there, there was a movie back in the 80s about her. Yeah. And he created all these characters because that was his mom and that was his girlfriend. Wow. Strong, strong, strong women. women. He He initially had a problem with racism, but after talking with Lovecraft, who also fairly racist, I might add, mm-hmm. but later started adding strong black protagonists and strong Jewish protagonists. Wow. So... He, he learned from his mistakes and started to correct. But again, he, his career only lasted 15 years because he took his life at the age of 30.
1: And even that's amazing because he started so young because special interests, monotropism, like to have a 15 year career when you die at 30 is pretty impressive. Exactly. And to make this mark on the world.
0: And, and that's a thing, because he he made a mark not only on the sword and sorcery genre, not only in uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's bank account. Yes. But uh, two years later, uh, some Jewish kids from New York said, you know what, that sounds neat. Let's try that. And uh, they they uh, they were in high school and they started drawing stories about this really strong dude. And they said, "You know what? It would be really great. They imbued him with a lot of their Jewish heritage. Uh, he was he became like a Moses allegory because he was cast off from a from a, a land in order to avoid a catastrophe. He came to a new land. His original name uh, was based on the Hebrew word for God because he came to a new land to protect this new land. Uh, his name was Kalel the Superman. Right. Yes, okay. All right. So, and again, the original version of Superman was just a really strong dude. He grew up, well, he was born on Krypton, which had a strong gravity, and he was sent here to Earth. And originally, the original version of Superman uh, was found in a field by some farmers and grew up in an orphanage. And lost all of his heritage and just became a really strong dude who fought uh, mobsters, who fought capitalists, who fought all these people taking advantage of people during the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. and because he had a very strong moral center. He fought for the underdog, much like Conan before him. He, he used his incredible strength to beat up bad guys because that's the only recourse that he had. But again, could not fly, did not have x-ray vision, did not have heat vision. Uh, he, he was just a strong dude who wore weightlifter uh, tights which is where the 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 costume comes comes from. From, Yeah, exactly. And uh, a year after that, another really strong dude was created who uh, 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 flew around on a a cape and a a string and uh, beat up mobsters in Gotham City. And uh, Bill Finger is the driving force behind Batman and had all the good elements. Bob Kane took away a lot of uh, credit because again, Bill Finger, also Jewish. And it was custom at the time to screw over Jewish people, which Mm. is incredibly unfortunate. (laughs) So Batman and Superman were both created. And then a year after that, An invincible man was created who wore tights and a cape and could fly and leap strong buildings in a single bound and had a nemesis that was a bald, mad scientist who wanted to take over the world. This was Captain Marvel. Oh. Uh, Captain Marvel uh, initially was much more popular than Superman. He wore some red tights. Uh, People today know him better as Shazam. He just had a recent movie come out. Mm -hmm. But uh, Captain Marvel was originally Billy Batson, a young boy who got magic powers by screaming the word Shazam. Again, not his name, because if you scream your own name and you transform, that's mightily inconvenient. So Shazam could fly. Shazam had all sorts of superpowers. Shazam's arch nemesis, Dr. Sivana, was a bald, mad scientist who wanted to take over the world uh, and had all these friends and had his family, Uh, Mary Marvel, Captain Marvel Jr. Captain Marvel Jr. was the reason that Elvis wore a cape and uh, his uh, jumpsuit because Elvis was a huge Captain Marvel fan. So Captain Marvel outsold Superman all over the place, which caused DC to be very, very upset and lots of lawsuits Uh, They ping-ponged back and forth. But in 1953, Fawcett Comics that published Captain Marvel went out of business, and Captain Marvel was dead for a while. Okay. Uh, The the copyright lapsed, and uh, in the 1960s, Marvel Comics said, you know what would make a good name? Captain Marvel. So that's the reason that Marvel now has Captain Marvel. And Mm. in 1972, Captain Marvel was licensed to DC, but again, he couldn't be Captain Marvel anymore, so it became Shazam!, Again, screaming his own name in order to get superpowers. And by 1991, he was fully integrated into the DC universe. Fun fact, which I find fun because I love fun facts. Mm. So Digimon Honsu, uh is a, an actor who uh, in Guardians of the Galaxy plays Korath the Pursuer. And he later reprised this role for the Carol Danvers incarnation of Captain Marvel. But he also played the wizard Shazam in the Shazam movie. So he is the only actor to be in both Captain Marvel movies. Huh. The, the, the DC Captain Marvel and the Marvel yeah. Captain Marvel. All right. and because Digimon Hansu is a, a, a power player. So, yeah, fun fact if you want to impress friends who are in... Yeah.
1: We love sharing stories of autistic culture. And if you are seeing yourself in any of these stories and you're wondering if maybe you're one of us or maybe you're already diagnosed or self-diagnosed and you wanna know if Matt can help you live your life better and be more authentically autistic, check out his website at MattLowryLPP.com. That's Matt, M-A-T-T, Lowry, L-O-W-R-Y. And then that LPP, it stands for Licensed Psychological Practitioner. So head on over to MattLowryLPP.com and learn more about working with my buddy, Matt.
0: We'll come back to Superman in just a bit. I, I want to okay. rewind a little bit to 1989. Big year. Because back in the day, uh, back in the 60s, we had Adam West as campy Batman.
1: I and remember. I loved it. It was a everyone childhood loved favorite.
0: Yeah, yeah. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. Mm-hmm. And he, he became the face of Batman until ABC said, you know what? This is a very expensive show. Let's do other stuff. And that was the face of Batman for a very long time until the Dark Knight Returns came out in the 80s, it was featuring a grim, gritty future Batman fighting mutants and all sorts of stuff. And that so there there was a man and oh, I'm blanking on his name, but he said, you know what, we really need to make a Batman movie. Starting in the 1970s, he wanted to make a Batman movie. Then in the 80s, when The Dark Knight Returns came out, he said, oh, that would make a good Batman movie. And so he started telling people and talking to directors. And he met this young autistic man who was just recently fired by Disney for being too dark named Tim Burton. Ah, okay. (laughs) So uh, he said, you know what? Look at this comic. And Tim Burton said, well, you know, it's an adequate comic, but you know what we really need to do? We need to rework this a bit. So Tim Burton spent a few months reworking Batman. And uh, so historically, Batman's parents were killed in Crime Alley by this man named Joe Chill. And that's what caused him to become a crime fighter. Tim Burton said, you know what? We need to fix this. Let's make his parents killed by the Joker. Mm. Because Tim Burton's focus on this was not a guy in a bat suit. Tim Burton's focus on this was a man haunted by chaos who needed to impose order.
1: Ooh, okay. Back to our autistic themes here.
0: The Joker represents ultimate chaos Batman represents ultimate order. And again, this is Batman's monotropic focus. Batman's real identity is Batman. He camouflages, he masks as Bruce Wayne to fit into the world around him. He pretends to be a millionaire playboy in order to fit in with society, in order to fund his projects of justice. He spends all of his time in the basement uh, with surrogate dad, Alfred, uh surrogate dad brings him food you know polishes his bat suits put away his boomerangs and his mission is justice every night all night he's out fighting and so so uh, fun fact uh, some fun backstory on this i've got all sorts of interesting uh personal notes on the making of the batman movie because for many years i was pen pals with a man named william hootkins and William Hookins played Porkins in the first Star Wars movie. And uh, he also played uh, the uh, the guy in Indiana Jones who takes the Lost Ark. He plays uh, the guy in Flash Gordon, who is a scientist. He plays uh, the Lieutenant Eckhart in Batman. He's been in like 90 movies. He was cut from the island of Dr. Moreau because of a personal argument with Marlon Brando. And uh, he... We, we talked a lot. He once called me uh, long distance from England and talked about his next-door neighbor, John Cleese, because they would sit outside and uh, feed the squirrels cherries together. They would import cherries and feed the squirrels together, and then one day, the mailman knocks on John Cleese's door. John Cleese thought it was a squirrel, so he opens the window and screams, go away! I don't have any more cherries! And then slams the window, as John Cleese is one to do. So... Uh, Bill Hookins and I corresponded for years until he, you know, died of cancer. Did you uh, just
1: randomly start sending him snail mail letters?
0: Oh, oh. uh, Like as a fan? Uh, Back in the day, I I noticed that Porkins was a... uh, uh Porkins exploded for no reason and being a fat kid with a beard he was a fat pilot with a beard and his uh droid was R5D4 which was the other droid at the sandcrawler in the opening of Star Wars right but R5D4 disappears right before he explodes probably because of pyrotechnics issues but again I created a grand conspiracy theory uh made a website about it and uh wrote a letter to Bill Hookins and said hey we're we're big fans of yours me and my brother uh I, I like your work. I'm really impressed that you were in Batman and in Flash Gordon and this and this and this. And uh, he first thought we were crazy, yep. as one does. Uh, but his wife eventually, he was living in England and over a cup of tea, his wife said, No, they seem just like good kids. Why don't you call them? So one day I get a long distance call from England and it's Bill Hootkins and I'm like, You're shitting me, really? Oh my God. So we sat and talked on the phone and then we corresponded by email for many years. And he would tell me when he's working on a new movie and, you know, we, we, he's, he had all sorts of interesting stories. Uh, turns out that the opening of Batman, when the, the two parents are robbed, just like, you know, Bruce Wayne's parents were robbed. One of those is the guy who plays Biggs, Luke's childhood friend from Star Wars. Because again, in England, there's like 15 actors and they're all in everything. So uh, yeah, he, he had a lot of behind the scenes stories. He was a very, very nice guy. And, uh, my first ever massive, uh, campaign was to get him an action figure because he didn't have an action figure. So I wrote letters to Kenner, then Hasbro. Uh, I interrupted every chat to talk about Porkins and how cool Porkins was. Uh, I, uh, Eventually, they gave in and said, you know what? We're going to make Porkins. I'm like, oh, great. So he got his Porkins action Aww. figure, and he was so impressed that he started doing the con circuit and signing pictures. And one of my best, one of the things I keep in my cave where my best, this is my good stuff. My best stuff is in my cave. Ooh. And my best stuff includes a, uh, 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 an autograph of Porkins from William Hookins saying, you can hold it. So because that was his line from the movie. Yeah. Yeah. But, but but anyway, side note on that. He had a lot to say about Tim Burton. He said that Tim Burton is a wonderful gentleman. He said that Tim Burton uh, uh looking back on it clearly autistic. Uh he said that Tim Burton had a personal interpreter because he didn't understand what Jack Nicholson said. Mm. Because Jack Nicholson apparently had big flowery language, Tim Burton couldn't wrap his head around it and he said, "What did he say?" So but but apparently Jack Nicholson also a wonderful guy. Tim Burton a wonderful guy. He uh, he said that uh, he was it was one of the best times he ever had working on a movie set. Also, the set from Axis Chemicals and the opening of Batman was also used in Aliens as uh, where the aliens took over. So on the set of Batman, you see all sorts of alien goop left over from the previous production. Wow. But long okay. story short, long story short, Tim Burton's Batman is a man who has no friends, who spends all of his time sitting in his cave, waiting for his monotropic interest, fighting bad guys. He has a very rigid uh, rule about no guns because guns killed his parents. He might explode you, but, uh, you know, he blew up a chemical factory. But uh, he, he had a very, very rigid rule about that and a very rigid rule about justice. And this worked. And this was the biggest interpretation of Batman. So Warner Brothers said, you know what? We trust you. We want you to make the ultimate Tim Burton Batman movie. And Tim Burton said, fantastic. I've got ideas. <laughs> so Batman Returns. Batman Returns was shot uh, uh, to take place in winter. So with black Gotham City, with black-suited Batman, black-suited Catwoman, uh, and white snow all over the place, he effectively made it a black-and-white movie. Mm. Tim Burton's special interest is German Expressionist cinema. And so uh, the, the Penguin in Batman Returns is directly based on Dr. Caligari from the German Expressionist film The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Ah. Oh, okay, and the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is about a man who looks like the penguin, who has a sideshow with a sleepwalker who looks like uh, Edward Scissorhands, because again, he loves German expressionist cinema. Mm-hmm. Uh, who commits murders, and it's a murder mystery about trying to out Caligari. The German government in the 1930s did not like that it was critical of people in positions of authority. Because fascism. So they made the director shoot an alternate ending that was tacked on where the protagonist turns out he was just a delusional patient in a mental asylum. And Dr. Caligari was the benevolent doctor of the mental asylum. But in doing so, in complying with these orders, the director made it even weirder to say that the real world is really, really messed up. If you think the delusions are bad, the real world is way worse. So this had a major influence on Tim Burton, including uh, Selena Kyle, Catwoman's boss, is named Max Schreck, after the guy uh, who played Grof Orlock in Nosferatu. Ah, uh, the guy who okay. played the vampire in Nosferatu, Max Schreck. Uh, and, and again, uh, <laughs> uh, oh, 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 man, uh, Christopher, oh, what's his name? Dancing, Lion Tamer. Ah, what's his name? Oh my God! Ah, oh, I can't. Uh, the the headless horseman in Sleepy Hollow. Uh, oh God, what's his name? The people read uh, the people listening to this podcast right now are shouting it, and I can't hear you right because <laughs> I can't. Yeah, yeah, Christopher Walken. There we go. There we go. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now I know. Chris, right. Christopher Walken played Max Shrek, a longtime hero, and this all involved masking because again. Bruce Wayne puts on a mask as being a normal, non-traumatized autistic person. Selena Kyle, what? initially very meek, initially uh, uh, giving in to you know, people around her, dies and comes back as a very stronger character. Mm. But again, part of that is defending the, the, the person that was vulnerable. So she puts on a big mask, he puts on a mask, and eventually the masks clash. But when they meet each other as raw people, uh, they say, do we have to start fighting again? because they they have this connection because they understand why they're masking, why they mm. have this thing and it's a, the ultimate like autistic relationship of getting past the mask and finding the vulnerability within. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that, that became a very big, also Pee Wee Herman played the penguin's father side note. So, Hey, uh, so, uh, the people at Warner brothers said, you know, it, it it seemed really great except for, you know, all the sexual comments and the time when the penguin was eating raw fish and the fact that it wasn't very marketable to the happy meal. Uh, let's, let's change that a little bit. And he said, no, I'm not changing anything because I have PDA and a very strong moral responsibility. Uh, So they said, all right, we'll get Joel Schumacher and that that was a whole other thing but but the 1989 and the 1992 Tim Burton Batman very autistic mm. so this these again very much inspired later superheroes especially the, the Kevin Feige especially the Marvel Cinematic <laughs> Universe and especially this man named James Gunn okay and James Gunn has a strong history of including autistic explicitly i might add autistic characters in everything he does for instance like in 2010 he created the superhero deconstructionist movie super with rain wilson and elliot page yeah and uh I, I strongly suspect that both of them are autistic, uh, especially if you ever watch Juno, if you ever watch The Office, if you ever see interviews with them. But uh, Frank and Libby became the Crimson Bolt and Bolty, And they they were this is set in the real world where people do not have superpowers. But again, Frank is this man who is in a really rough marriage. His wife just left him for her drug dealer and he has a very strong sense of justice. He has a lot of monotropism. He has no friends except for Libby. She also has no friends. She wants to get in on this strong sense of justice. She also has monotropism. So they become a real-life pair of superheroes where they, like the people in Chicago, dress up and fight crime, including trying to save Frank's wife from this drug dealer. And this is James Gunn's commentary. This is James Gunn's expression of how this came to pass. And and of course, you might know James Gunn better from those movies, The Guardians of the Galaxy.
1: Right. That is how I know him.
0: And The Guardians of the Galaxy, all autistic coded. You probably know Drax because Drax is very literal. And there were a lot of articles when the movie came out about how he was an inspiration to autistic kids because nothing goes over my head. I am too fast. I will catch it. And he t- he takes everything literally. But even beyond that, he's very, very monotropically focused on justice. He's very, very passionate. He doesn't show it. He has this very strong exterior. But in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, there's this heartbreaking scene where he's laughing and laughing and joking. And then Mantis, who is an empath, again, autistically coded. Uh, autistically coded for the traditional as they would say, female phenotype, because again, she's, she's got big emotions. She's socially awkward. She can do all kinds of neat stuff. So she touches Drax and feels his emotions and they both start crying because she knows that beyond this mask, he is a very, very broken, hurt man who misses his family. He misses his wife and he misses his daughter. And this is why he Spoiler alert, he might die in the new Guardians movie because he he he's essentially just waiting his time out to see them again Mm. because he's this. is, But that's the thing. He's very monotropic. He's uh, very logical. He's very literal minded. He has great big emotions that he hides with a mask. Mantis. Very, very big emotions. She can control the emotions of others. She has a better cue on others because she vibes with other people. She's socially awkward. If you've ever seen the Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special, uh, James Gunn said it's the greatest thing that he's ever done. And it stars uh, Drax and Mantis coming to Earth to get Kevin Bacon for Peter Quill's Christmas. (laughs) So they they, they chase down and capture Kevin Bacon because again, very literal minded. He beats up a Gobot because Gobot's killed his cousin. Canonically, GoBots are part of the Marvel universe now. So, so anyway, very autistically centered. But we also have Peter Quill, who's very much stuck in the past. He loves the 80s, much like you know some other people that I am. You know, he's he's kind of stuck in the past. He's traumatized by the death of his mother. He didn't know his father. Boy, his father is a uh, has a massive ego. There's a pun. Uh, uh, he, his father is actually Ego, the Living Planet, played by oh. Kurt Russell. Yeah. But uh he he has this very literal sort of way of viewing things. Uh he, I mean he's he's good at like movie references, much like Dan Harmon. But everything that he is is seen through a lens of movies, is seen through a lens of pop culture, is very much like James Gunn himself. Mm. So uh then we have Rocket, the only one of him that there is. And in the new movie, we'll find Rocket's friend, who is an otter who is also surgically altered by the high evolutionary, just like Rocket was. But Rocket's big thing is that he feels so alienated that no one will ever understand him because no one is like him. A big autistic Mm -hmm. thing.
1: Big autistic theme, yep.
0: And this leads to his relationship with Yondu. Again, puts on this giant mask of masculinity, just like Robert uh, Howard. Because... Uh, Yondu was sold into slavery as a baby and came up as a gladiator. Again, very similar to Conan, and he he fought for his own freedom and now he joins the Ravagers and fights for other people. And throughout the Guardians movies, he's very very tough on Peter, and he 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 tells you know his uh, crew of pirates you know that he's he's going to flay Peter alive and he's going to eat him and he's going to do all this stuff. But every time you see his interactions, he always gives Peter a second chance. Oh man, I'm tearing up on this. Mm. And he's always very protective of Peter. And even when Peter steals an infinity stone from him and replaces it with a troll, he's like, oh, that's my boy. Because Yondu has a collection of knickknacks. Because every autistic person has a collection. And throughout the movies, Uh, he, he talks a big game, but when it comes down to it, he sacrifices himself for Peter and God, that's a moment that gets me every time. And that's, that's a big mask that he puts on because he can't be vulnerable because being vulnerable is hard in a world that hurts us. And that, oh God, that's a big autistic story. And speaking of strong, that's Gamora because she was raised by a psychopath who took her away from her mother, and she has to be this strong, strong woman. Very much inspired by Robert Howard's strong women, mm-hmm. especially the fact that she's essentially a space pirate with a sword, much like Red Sonia, much like uh, you know the pirates. Uh, and that's Nebula too, because she speaks very robotically; she has no affect, because that's how thanos built her but inside she's strong she's vulnerable and she just wants her sister Mm -hmm. she never wanted to be a machine she never wanted to be strong she had to out of survival and this is these are all big oh and of course craglin played by sean gunn james gunn's brother uh who is just Kind of there for the ride, but he's also incredibly loyal and willing to overthrow his crew in order to protect Yondu and Rocket. So this is why they're so tight, because they're a group of outcasts who never found family until they found each other. Right. And this is, this is a very, very autistic family. This is a very, very autistic found family, which is a cop- popular thing for autistic people. They they all understand each other. They're all willing to make big sacrifices for each other. As a matter of fact, throughout the course of the movies, Peter Quill tries to sacrifice himself with uh, the the Power Stone, but everyone joins in to help him. Mm. Drax jumps into danger again and again because, again, he sort of has a death wish because he wants to see his family again. Rocket, he's he's willing to do anything because he says, quote, I ain't got that long a lifespan anyway. Groot, literally sacrificed himself. He died at the first uh, Guardians movie and Groot Jr. has been in since. Uh, Gamora was killed by Thanos and now we have new Gamora. Nebula killed the alternate version of herself in order to protect Gamora, in order to protect her family. Uh, No, 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 Nebula. Sorry, Uh, I don't know if I said Gamora again, but Nebula did it. Yeah, Yeah. Yondu sacrificed himself to save his son. And uh, Mantis... uh, there's a whole big story about uh, in her in the Marvel comics that we'll, we'll see how that goes. But, uh, yeah, everyone is willing to sacrifice themselves or has sacrificed themselves for their family because their bond is that tight. their Their emotions are that strong. That is the autistic bond. That is the we will do anything for the people mm-hmm. we care about. We will go to any lengths for the people we care about because they are us. When autistic people find a special interest, they go deep and have a lot of knowledge, even if they don't have that formal education background to go with it. If you want to capture your spin in a book, check out Angela's work at differencepress.com, differencepress.com, and find out more about becoming an author and establishing your credibility with a book.
1: So, uh, So this is the thing that also goes back to being literal. It took my husband a really long time to tell me he loved me because he has like all these things that I love you means like one of them would be I would die for you. Like, of course. So he's like, I'm not just going to say that if I don't mean it. And so I think in neurotypical culture, like you'll just say, like, I love you. I care about you. We're family. I do anything for you. But no one actually expects you to do anything for you. But like, that doesn't even, we're like, well, then why would you say that? You should say something else because that's confusing. Because now I think you're going to do anything for me. But if you're not going to do any, I don't. uh. So that when you see not just an autistically coded character, but a, but a urban family structure, a found family structure. It means very different things because we are literal and our loyalty does run in a in a different way, it means yeah. something different to us. I want to say the right thing, but I'm trying to not. Um, yeah, it, it feels yeah. very right. I know I get righteous about this, but it's just like, why would you say it if you didn't mean it? It feels like you're lying.
0: Exactly, exactly, and that's the thing because in Thor: Love and Thunder, Peter Quill says specifically that you know he that he tells Thor that he needs to find people that he loves, find his family because he legit loves the Guardians. Those are his family. He really, really does love them. And that's that's a big thing. Uh, and like you said, you know, allistics will say, I love you. They don't mean it.
1: Right. They it, mean, it's, it's I enjoy your company or something. Yeah. It, yeah.
0: It, <laughs> I won't kill you today.
1: <laughs> right? Having
0: fun. Yeah. So again, with uh, James Gunn's strict moral compass, he was a victim of online trolls and he he was briefly fired by Marvel because, you know, he spoke out against injustices. Hmm. He spoke out against things that, you know, he saw as being bad, again, especially with the rise of fascism and right wing stuff. So he went over to D.C. for a while where he is now the 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 captain of the industry. Uh, There he uh, created Peacemaker uh, with the Suicide Squad. Peacemaker very autistically coded because while he is much like Robert Heinlein initially, he starts off as racist and backward, but he still has this very strong sense of justice until he meets his friends. And his best friend is a queer black woman, so she sort of educates him to say, no, seriously, all the stuff you're saying is very, very bad. Don't do that. And he steps up. He She's very protective of him. He's very protective of her. His best friend from childhood is vigilante, who canonically comes out and says, yes, I'm autistic. Because he's he has all these, this monotropism, this strong sense of justice. And the Peacemaker family, again, found family sort of thing. Uh, Steve A.G. is, uh, 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 oh man, I can't remember his character's name. But again, an, another, he played King Shark before uh, Sylvester Stone dubbed him over in Suicide Squad. But a, a lot of autistic traits there. But the biggest thing is James Gunn's next movie that he's making after Guardians is Superman. Hmm. Because he says, again, this comes back to Superman. He says that Superman is, quote, old fashioned. But if we look at Superman through an autistic lens, we see that Superman has no friends. He's got Jimmy. He's got Lois. That's it. He has workplace proximity associates, as Ron Swanson would say. Yes. He's he's got... He sort of has Batman, you know. They they uh, hang That's out together, kind of a dress up in their anything. costumes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he he sort of got Wonder Woman. He's sort of got you know the Flash and Green Lantern. Every once in a while, I don't know, Mister Miracle might show up, and they'll be like, "Hey, hey!" But you know, generally speaking, he's got Lois. Right. He's got Jimmy. Uh, he he really really wants to fit in. He was again sent from Krypton, a world that, from the future. not literally, but, you know, futuristic world, came here. He is a demigod, again, like Captain Marvel. But uh, he he has, he lives in a world that is metaphorically made of tissue paper. If he ever loses his temper, cities can be destroyed. He must hold back on literally everything because he doesn't want to hurt the people around him. So if he ever has any big emotion, the world could die. Right. So he must be very, very in control of all of his emotions. He can never, ever let go. He he has a very strong sense of morality. He does not kill, which is a big thing about Zack Snyder. Zack Snyder does not understand Superman in the least. Zack Snyder says that he doesn't understand Superman and he never really liked Superman, which is the reason that the Zack Snyder, Snyder version of Superman is so terrible. Mm-hmm. But again, uh James Gunn knows that Superman has this monotropism for justice. Superman's alter ego. So, well, okay. So Superman is Clark Kent, right? Uh, Superman is the mask. Clark Kent is, whereas Batman is yeah, the it's real interesting, guy. Isn't it? Yeah, this is the reason why they're frenemies because they see, I eye to eye. much like Robert Howard and HP Lovecraft. They had these similarities, but also major differences of opinion. Uh, Uh, Superman is day shift. Batman is night shift. Superman is uh, Zeus. uh, Batman is Hades. Mm. And uh, yeah, there's a whole thing about the Greek pantheon being the DC pantheon of heroes. But anyway, uh, Superman is the mask that he puts on because he doesn't want his loved ones hurt. He doesn't want to be tracked back. He wants to protect his parents. He has a very strong relationship with his adopted parents in Kansas. He grew up as a farm boy. He didn't have any friends growing up except for Lana Lang, unless you follow Smallville, but that has a whole cult thing. So but he, he, he didn't have any friends growing up because he, again, felt alienated like no one understood him. He always had to hold back. He could never show what he was really capable of because people would call him weird or a freak. Mm, imagine that. He, 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 he had this strong focus on what was right. And those were the values that were instilled in him, which makes Superman a great, great hero. Because even though he could easily take over the world like General Zod, and indeed some versions like Injustice he has, the core version of Superman will always be someone who stands for truth and justice. And this is why he's appealing to James Gunn, because this is the version. Superman, uh, Clark Kent took a job as a journalist with the Daily Planet to expose wrongdoing, to expose people like corporations who are doing illegal dumping, to expose people who are being exploited, to, to bring this out into the media so that justice can be done in a human way, not just by super punching always, always, always thinking about what is best, which is why, and uh, this is going to seem very prescient for our day and age, his arch nemesis is a billionaire who became president, who uh, has no sense of morality and exploits people on a daily basis. And uh, yeah, and who is a, a massive megalomaniacal narcissist who is jealous of the press that Superman gets.
1: Ah, so Doesn't sound yeah. familiar at all.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but, but you know the difference. Lex Luthor, when uh, he uh, went for, when he uh, ran for president, he sold Lex Corp because he has more ethics than the oh, other guys.
1: Oh, so he has more ethic. Nice. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because again, yeah, Lex Luthor is a narcissist, uh, playing up straight out. Uh, when Superman occasionally dies, Lex Luthor tries to take over and uh, at some point even wore a Superman suit to say, look at me, I'm new Superman. Look at me, look at me, look at me, love me, love me, love me, love me. Because that's, that's Lex Luthor's personality. He, he's, Lex Luthor is brilliant, but a raging narcissist and cannot stand that Superman is getting the attention that he believes that he deserves. So there's the rivalry on that because Mm -hmm. uh, they they both have great power, but Lex Luthor is using it for his personal gain, whereas Superman is using it for the benefit of everyone. Right. And... That's one of
1: the, that's one of the tests um, that I always tell people, I get this confusion between a narcissist and someone who's autistic a lot. I've been accused of being narcissistic and I, and I, that's one of the tests I always tell people is like, look at why they're doing it though, because if they're doing it for the good of their community, if they're doing it for the good of their company, of their family. It might be equally annoying, but it's autistic. If they're doing it for themselves and it's strategic, that's where it's narcissism. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty easy to tell once you know that like central difference.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's really the main thing, and and this is a reason why when I see you know new people because I only do autistic-centered therapy with autistic people, some people come to me and say I've been diagnosed autistic, and I'm like, well, let's check that out because there's a lot of uh, holistics who can't tell the difference, and I I've come across a lot of raging narcissists who have been diagnosed autistic because they quote don't have empathy, right, and. That's that's a big thing, but but Superman has, according to James Gunn, quote, an old fashioned deep sense of justice, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, like yeah. a lot of autistic people. We have well, and justice. And you know. And
1: Autistic, uh, autistic person Jerry Seinfeld is a huge Superman fan.
0: Exactly, exactly, and and that is a thing that leads into all of this because Jerry came out as autistic until you know a lot of uh, women said you're nothing like my autistic son. He said, "All right, maybe I'll <laughs> okay. go back to the closet." Right. So I, I would love to talk to him about Superman. I would love to talk to him. about.
1: I think he would love to talk to you about Superman and anyone else on the planet. I believe it's yeah. his favorite thing to talk about. Yeah. It would just be a straight info dump.
0: <laughs> yeah, very much so. Every, everything, every episode, even that commercial where uh, he was, I think it was a bank card with animated Superman yep. voice. Yeah. But yeah, that, that's, that's the reason why superheroes, especially Superman, are appealing because they are the best of us they they are what we aspire to be they even like with marvel characters they're flawed human beings but they try to be better with dc they're they're essentially demigods but they they have this pinnacle of truth of fairness of right and wrong and when written really really well they're inspiration for everyone to make us these better people and when you combine that monotropic sense of uh we, we have to do this all the time, this justice sensitivity of what is right and what is wrong. And this, this oh man, what, I can't remember what I said at the beginning. I forgot what I said an hour ago. Yeah,
1: just, uh, just chaos, controlling the chaos.
0: Yes, controlling the chaos, because again, we, we live in a world full of chaos, full of injustice. We have to bring justice to the world. Uh, Walt Disney had a very, very big strong of chaos, but again, lean Good. more towards the fascism. Right. <laughs> but, you know, as one kind of does. But that's why you have to have all three in order to be a superhero. And I, I think that that's why superheroes have to be part of the autistic culture, because that that is the best of us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost... Uh... It's like the inevitable outcome when you do the Venn diagram it's the ikigai. guy superheroes yes. are the eeky guy of autism
0: Exactly god <laughs> i love that phrase yes uh, explain it because yes that is the ultimate like blend
1: The ikigai. guy yes Oh
0: yeah yes uh, and it is, is the ultimate but yeah that's, But yeah that's why uh, I, I think that uh, superheroes are an integral part of autistic culture Thesis
1: uh, accepted.
0: (laughs) So that said, uh, hey, Angela, uh, what was your favorite part about being autistic this week?
1: Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell the story of being autistic today, which is oh. uh, I live in an autistic family where schedules are very important, and if you say you're gonna do something at a certain time and date, you're gonna do it at that certain time and date. Um, I have more executive functioning challenges than my husband, so if he says you're gonna do something at let's say 10 a.m., that means you're gonna do it at 9:30. If I say you're going to do it at 10 a.m., it means you're going to do it at 10.30. It's not great. Uh, this is our ongoing battle because I'm always late and he's always chronically early, but that's good. That, that usually makes us on time. So I appreciate that. Um, but I changed the schedule and I did not place visual cues. I just did a little, I will change the schedule and you will read my mind which seemed <laughs> obvious to me, but there need to be flashcards. There need to be post-it notes. We must make it obvious when we are changing the schedule. And I failed to. And the thing that I love about this though is, so I changed the schedule, which screwed up 15 other things. And if you look at like habits stacking and how stuff gets done Uh, like just in productivity, if someone's teaching productivity, they're like, build a plan, build a system. And we have built into our life so many plans and systems that have to do with food, noise reduction, Uh, keeping our cats happy, Uh, the location of the sun, certain rooms get too bright. So I can't record in certain rooms at certain times. Like we're managing this chaos of all of our sensory sensitivities and we have different ones. So we've got like a lot of sensory sensitivities and the way that we keep them in order is with a schedule And when someone doesn't mess that up, it usually goes pretty well. And when somebody messes that up, which is usually me, um, it, leads to, and certainly before I really understood how autistic culture works and what are the norms of our culture and what's expected, it would lead to a fight. Like, can't you just be more flexible? I made a mistake. And now like understanding, hey, this is our culture and I violated the norms of our culture. I can't fix it because there is going to be chaos. But I can acknowledge like, hey, me changing the schedule isn't just about me changing the schedule because who cares about that? It's like, it's going to create a whole bunch of chaos. It's going to put you at threat of various sensory sensitivities that you have already accounted for. You've done all that work to think that through. And now I'm putting you in a position where you're going to have to mitigate a bunch of inputs that could lose It could screw up many other things throughout the day. Sometimes if I have one bad sensory exposure, it could be two or three or four hours. So it's not no big deal. So I was able to acknowledge, oops, that's a big deal. Um, And it it required a little bit of jiggling, but somehow we made it all come together. I'll do a little check-in shortly. But I think just knowing, hey, In our culture, when we say something, we mean it is so important to the other people around you that are autistic because otherwise it just feels like gaslighting and crazy making.
0: It's a violation of our social code.
1: Right. Right. So mea culpa. But it was nice to see that just by acknowledging it, because this is the other thing I find about autistic culture. We're so quick to forgive if you don't fucking gaslight me.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because then
1: I get not quick to forgive, but if it's just like, oh, that is a big deal, then it's like, okay, we can work with this now. It sucks, but people make mistakes and I'll do my best to manage the chaos you have now thrown into my life. But if you're just like, what's the big deal?
0: Yeah, then you have to pull out the big guns and argue extensively with citations and all. Yes,
1: Yes, and that's why we have Excel spreadsheets.
0: Exactly, (laughs) this is the way.
1: Yeah, so uh, I really enjoyed hearing about superheroes. I gotta say, I, I've known that they were on the team, but it was nice to hear the breakdown. A hundred years of history plus.
0: I I, I I had a fine info dump, and I'm I'm glad to be here for it. But, Except, uh,
1: oh, we want to hear your favorite superheroes. Oh yes, below. absolutely. And um, and then also all the facts that Matt got wrong. Feel free to correct him also in the comments.
0: <laughs> I, I, I like facts. Lay it on me. <laughs> yeah, we'll
1: take them. All right. We'll see you guys back here next week. Thanks, Matt. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Autistic Culture Podcast.
0: If you like this show, you can help other people find it by taking a few minutes to rate and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts.
1: You can find out more about writing your book with me at differencepress.com. That's difference, D-I-F-F-E-R-E-N-C-E, press, P-R-E-S-S.com.
0: Or getting a psychological evaluation or consult with me at www.mattlowerylpp.com. That's M-A-T-T, Matt. Lowry, L-O-W-R-Y, L-P-P, as in Licensed Psychological Practitioner.com.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and remember,
0: no one ever changed the world by being like everyone else.